0: I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'm going to go to the bathroom and I'm going to go to the bathroom.
1: Welcome to the Perfume Room. My scent of the day today is yet another change of heart fragrance. If you recall, this happened to me not too long ago with a certain commodity scent, that scent being Commodity Paper Plus. Now, I've been talking about commodity as long as I've had this platform, and with that said, when they introduced their new scent space collection, of all of the new fragrances, I found Paper, in all of its iterations, to be pretty underwhelming. But for some reason, something possessed me to bring a sample of Commodity Paper Plus on a weekend trip a few months back, and I wore it all weekend long. And as soon as I got home, I knew I needed a full bottle of it. And wouldn't you know it, it is one of my go-to scents in my weekly rotation, and I wear it often. And I had the exact same experience this past weekend because I went home to my mom's house for the holiday, and whenever I go home, I usually don't pack any fragrances, and instead I just sort of cycle through whatever I left in my drawer in my bedroom. So this weekend I found an unused sample of Etat Libre d'Orange Remarkable People, something I had previously written off as unremarkable. After wearing it for about an hour, I could not stop smelling my wrists. It was such a nostalgic smell and one that I can best describe as that very distinct smell of both a glossy magazine and the perfume strips that you would find inside them. Do you know what I'm talking about? It's like that papery smell of a freshly printed magazine and then that sort of vaguely perfumey smell of the sillage of a mixture of whatever traditionally masculine and traditionally feminine fragrances are in that issue. It's spicy. I would even call it like a little Christmassy, glossy, fresh, a little bit makeup-y. It smells perfumey, but not in a generic way. So yeah, I do have some other gripes with that brand, um, like some recent offensive marketing decisions that they've made. But when it comes to Remarkable People, I am so pleasantly surprised and delighted And I could see this really being a great signature winter scent. It's crisp, it's spicy, it's fresh, but it has depth. And according to the fragrance wheel, it's classified as a woods scent, which is a great segue to today's guest. This week's guest has not only authored Perfume Legends Volumes 1 and 2, he is one. I am joined by the person responsible for the taxonomy of fragrance as we know it, the inventor of the fragrance wheel, the reason that we classify an iris scent as not just a floral, but more specifically, a soft floral, or a galbanum scent as not just a fresh scent, but more specifically, a green scent. He's the person who has forever transformed the way we describe and classify fragrance, a task once viewed as nebulous, subjective, and altogether daunting, into something simple, empirical, and impartial. Today, I am joined by Michael Edwards. We discussed the seminal moments in culture that paved way for the seminal fragrances of the last century, and more specifically, the fragrance landscape BC and AC, that is, before Charlie and after Charlie. We also discussed the origins of discounted fragrance, also known as the gray market, and perhaps one of the biggest bombshells of our conversation, Michael describes how without the gray market, there would be no niche market. I repeat, niche exists because of the gray market. And of course, Michael walks us through in great detail, the fragrance wheel, how and where each family and subfamily relates to and differs from one another so that after this episode, you or I might be able to smell a fragrance and evaluate where exactly it lies on the wheel. Here is Michael Edwards. Michael Edwards, welcome to the perfume room. How are you doing on this lovely day? Hello,
0: Emma. It's a pleasure to join you.
1: I'm so happy to talk with you. We were going back and forth with questions earlier, and as we both have realized, there is so much to cover. So let's go back to the basics. When did your love of fragrance first begin?
0: (laughs) I was born in Central Africa, deepest Africa. And uh, when I was a kid, uh, I'd be fascinated by the scent of Tamboti wood, the women would put it in their fire. It's the warmest kind of woody scent. Just the memory of it brings back shivers.
1: Mm. And and when did that translate to fragrance specifically?
0: Fragrance made an impression on me, I think. When I realized that my mother loved Chanel Number no. 5, I, I, I couldn't afford it. But I'd smelt a, a similar one. It was called Intimate by Revlon. And I remember the thing that fascinated me was the advertising line that said cherished as one of the world's seven great perfumes. I always mm. wondered what the other six were.
1: Yeah. Did you ever find out what the other six were? No. <laughs> it's like those advertisements that say like four out of five dentists recommend this, and you're like, What is yeah. what is the other dentist doing? Yeah. You're quite right. Yeah. Oh, I love that. You have done so many notable things in your career, but perhaps the most notable thing is the invention of Fragrances of the World and the Fragrance Wheel. So I want to go back. When did you first realize that there was a need for some sort of greater classification?
0: In the 1970s, I worked for Holston. Holston was an enormous brand at that time. It was launched in 1975 and within the space of a couple of years, made more money than the whole of Max Factor USA. I was based in Paris, working on the international rollout of the fragrances. And it wasn't just Holston, there was Jean uh, there was Missoni and others in the collection. And so I would travel a great deal. And it's always been my habit to spend time in the perfumeries in the department stores with the sales associates and the, uh, uh, the consultants. Um, remember if you would that back In the 70s, the perfume counters were dominated by extraordinary women and some equally amazing men whose knowledge was just awe-inspiring. We have very few these days. Mm -hmm. But back then, these were the czarinas of perfume, and they knew their business backwards. But there was a problem. No matter how skilled they were, they found it difficult to when people ask them the question, I like this, what else do you think I'm going to like? Mm -hmm. You see, Emma, we have no common language, let alone fragrance language.
1: Right.
0: And the brands don't make it helpful because they describe their fragrances, each of them, quite differently. And so if you're trying to figure out, well, this fragrance, what should I match to another? You run up against a problem of language. And so mostly the consultants, the sales associates would recommend the fragrances they had confidence in, the fragrances that they liked. Mm -hmm. Now, I got in the habit of asking the question, what do you wear? What do you like? And almost invariably, I found, and I knew my fragrance quite well by that stage, I found that if they gave me three or four names, at least two of them would fall in the same family. Mm -hmm. And that seemed to me to be the key sell in fragrances. I was fascinated by that idea. Mm -hmm. Well, I got downsized in 1983. Holston had retired, a very hurt and bruised man. Holston, the company, uh, was part of the Max Factor Group, and that was part of Norton Simon, that great combine that had Avis and Hunts Tomato Ketchup and a dozen other disparate brands, and that got sold (laughs) off. Mm -hmm. And so at the age of 40, I got downsized. I I was determined I would never work for a company again. Mm -hmm. And I was equally fascinated by this opportunity of showing retailers how how easy it was to sell fragrance. In effect, all I had to do was to ask one question. What fragrances do you wear, Emma? What -hmm. fragrances do you love? And if they could get three or four names out of them, no more, almost invariably, they'd find that at least two of them fell in the same family. And logically, Mm -hmm. you would focus on that family and select three other fragrances from that family to show the Mm -hmm. people. Now, what are the odds that if you show somebody three fragrances from a family that you think they like, that they're going to like it enough to buy it? Well, it really did work very well indeed, but there was a problem. There was no guidebook, because obviously to make this work, one had to provide them with a guide, and Mm -hmm. there was none. The mm-hmm. French Society of Perfumers had a, had a really superb guide, but it was limited in the number of fragrances.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, there was a marvellous genealogy from Harman and Reimer, but that over the years had become so technical that it was usable for the evaluators and the perfumers, but probably not fully understandable by the people working behind the counters. Right. Right. And so willy-nilly in 1984, I created my first guide. Um, I know it sounds complicated, but it really wasn't. Uh, I put together a presentation for the perfumeries and the department stores, Uh, both the salespeople, the counter sales associates, the managers, to explain to them this new method of assisting customers. And they were fascinated. Then the brands started to ask if I would do workshops for them. Yves Saint Laurent was my first, and I'm eternally grateful to them. Then came Chanel. And so I spent the next, oh, it must have been about 16 years Mm -hmm. traveling and doing my presentation. It turned into Mm -hmm. a sort of a one-day fragrance workshop. Mm -hmm. And people liked the guidebook. Mm -hmm. Uh, It made sense. It was the only guide that really made it easy to compare one fragrance to another that -hmm. you could use at a counter. Remember, there were far fewer fragrances then.
1: Right, right. When I
0: put out my first guide in 1984, there were only 29 new fragrances.
1: Very different than today. Oh,
0: and that's how it happened.
1: Right, right. Well, how was it first received? I mean... I, maybe I'm projecting here, but I feel like I would be a little bit nervous to to bring something to these to a whole group of perfumers and say this is how we're now going to classify oh, you're your right. industry. Oh, how, you're right. how was that?
0: I was terrified. <laughs> Remember that many of the people who attend to my presentations were the czarinas of the counters, extremely knowledgeable ladies. Right. I both loved and feared them, loved them, because (laughs) when I was trying to secure samples of the new fragrances, they would become literally, they mothered me. They Mm -hmm. were marvellous in the assistance they gave me, the advice. I'm eternally grateful. But equally well on a presentation, uh, they gave no quarter. They were about to test you on everything. Right. Fortunately, my memory is pretty good, and I was able to get around it. And uh, they were the ones that really taught me my business. <laughs>
1: mm. Yeah, and so when you when you introduced this to your peers, to the industry, was it well-received immediately?
0: Yes, it was, because it was something totally new. Mm -hmm. There was no guide available generally at that stage, so this was mana from Heaven. Mm -hmm. Um, They were especially intrigued by the fact that for the first time you could seriously assist a customer by saying, well, if you like this one, why don't you try this, this, or this? Mm -hmm. That worked.
1: I'm also curious as well, for people listening who have a basic understanding of the classification system and of the fragrance wheel, which we'll also get into... How would you relate how you break down families versus facets? You know, if we think about uh, middle school science, like kingdom, phylum, class, order, what is that, what is that order in fragrance? Um,
0: I break it down this way. The major groups are florals, amber notes, woody notes, and fresh notes. Mm-hmm. Now, contained in those four major groups, you have 14 individual families. They range in the florals, floral, and the soft florals. That's the technically the floral aldehydes, but I call them the soft florals because if you talk about floral aldehydes at a counter, you can see people with a puzzled expression <laughs> in their eyes. Right. And you feel constrained to say, oh, these are full of alde- aldehydes, they have synthetic notes and... Uh, you know, you could almost see. Right, not as consumer-friendly as in. you'd like it to
1: be. right? <laughs> boredom selling and you've right. lost the sale. Yes.
0: Then you have the amber notes introduced by the floral amber notes, then the soft amber or what the perfumers called semi-amber, mm-hmm. the true amber notes like a Ma, the Queens of Perfumery, and then I introduced the family woody ambers. Uh, I had to because in 1985... Givenchy introduced Isatis. Ah, said the perfumer, set un chypre. it's a mossy, woody note. No, said Givenchy, it's an amber note. And we were seeing the development of a new generation of the woody, ambery notes pioneered by Avenita, the Molinar fragrance from 1921. Now, I have to work with both the brands and the perfumers. And so the solution was to split the floral amber notes mm-hmm. into two. Mm-hmm. My floral amber notes are dominated by the spicy fragrances of, say, orange flower, mm-hmm. whereas the woody amber notes are dominated by the potent woody notes of patchouli and sandalwood. Mm-hmm. And so that's how it happens. So you go from uh, floral amber to soft amber to amber to woody amber. Mm-hmm. That un- logically moves into the woody notes. The woody notes and the mossy wood notes that the perfumers call shebra, I call them mossy woods because if you talk about sheep which is simply the french name for the island of cyprus mm-hmm. where oak moss originated people will think you're talking about woolly animals and right. the pattering of woolly notes around the counter mm-hmm. and then you have the dry leather notes coming through mm-hmm. and finally the fougier notes which are really a stew of all those families put together mm-hmm. and that's how it works now within those uh, how did I then divide the classifications? Well, my starting point in each family were the fragrances that were typical of that family. For example, a rose or a jasmine. Joy, for example, is a typical floral. Chanel Number no. 5, typical floral aldehyde or soft floral. The sparkling aldehydes are tied, softened with the powdery notes of iris in the base. Mm-hmm. The floral amber notes... Well, here you get these heady notes of orange flower with other spices, cinnamon, nutmeg. Add to that incense and it turns it into a soft amber note. Pull out your bells and whistles, the potent uh, um, resin notes and tonka beans, that's amber. Add patchouli and sandalwood. And lo and behold, you've got a woody amber notes. Take out the amberic part of it and you've got the woody notes there, whether Mm -hmm. it's vetiver or cedar. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Add then the scent of oak moss, or now more and more patchouli instead. You transform it to a sheeple or a mossy woody note. Add then the scent of birchwood. Now we use uh, or, uh, synthetic notes for it. Mm-hmm. But in the old days, the Russians would cut the bark of a birch tree. And when the sap comes out, they would rub it to waterproof their weather boots. And that's the smell of Russian leather. And that's how it works. So number one, we have typical fragrances. Number two, how do you describe fragrances that are not that typical? Problem. The solution came one night mm-hmm. when I woke up and there it was. They say if you think about something long enough, it comes. It's true. And the solution was to use our descriptions. We talk about fragrances smelling fresher or richer. So I thought, why don't I do that? And so I invented a scale of fresh, crisp, classic, rich notes mm. in each family. The classics are typical. So if I looked at at the simplest form, rose and jasmine would be classical florals. Mm -hmm. Compare them to tuberose, and you've got a far deeper smell because the tuberose is a deeper smell. If I turned it into a sound, it would be like rose the classic, tuberose the rich. Now, what's fresher than, say, rose or jasmine would be gardenia, Mm -hmm. and even fresher lily of the valley. So Mm -hmm. if I gave you a lily of the valley fragrance in the dry down, diorissimo compared to Mark Jacobs' uh, perfume, the mm-hmm. gardenia note, right. that's a crisp one, compared to, say, Chloe, mm-hmm. a classic rose note, compared to Frakkah, the tuberose note, your nose would step down a step, but, forgive me, Evan, I can't really sing, but you're going <laughs> to have to put up with it. You go down a staircase of um, Diorissimo, the freshest, down to Mark Jacobs, the crisp, down to a Chloe, the classic, down to Fracca, the rich. And you can smell them on the dry down. Remember, I classify on dry down.
1: Right, right.
0: Now I'm going to complicate things. Okay. So you've got four basic groups. You've got 14 families. You've got four notes, a staircase of four notes. Within each of those notes, we give you subnotes to make it even easier to identify. For example, if I take a fragrance like Joy and dress it up in a green dress, I'll get something like Norello, where you're taking the basic floral and kind of freshening it. If I put some fruity notes around it, then then you've got a fruity floral. If I put some gourmand tasty notes, Mm -hmm. you've got a gourmand floral. And so we play the changes that way. It's very logical and actually very simple.
1: Hmm. I love that you've created something where I, I feel like the world of perfume feels so sort of mysterious or unclassifiable. And you've almost made it like a one plus one is two. Like, well, there is an oak moss note and thus it sits here. There is a spicy orange note and thus it sits here. And you've found a way to sort of dissect. Well, I guess, okay, this is leading me to another question as I'm thinking about this. But as I've learned... Oftentimes, fragrance pyramids are not completely reflective of the ingredients that are actually in a a fragrance. So how does that impact or not impact how you classify a fragrance?
0: Firstly, um, I I really ignore most of them. Uh, While I'm interested in the notes that are contained there, remember these are usually marketing documents. right? And perfumes are blended so well that it's very difficult to be able to pick out a distinctive one. Mm-hmm. Oh, yes, if you smell fracas, the tuberose right. rose, sings out. I mean, granted for that. But even on Chanel Number no. 5, it's tough to be able to identify all the components of that fragrance. I try terribly hard not to get involved in details um, any more than I would go to a symphony and say, oh, did you notice that that G minor was wrong? you know i try to look at the totality of the fragrance Mm -hmm. ideally i'd like to wear it for a while so that i can understand i ignore the top note because that's a distraction it's (laughs) merely an overture to the fragrance Mm -hmm. Uh, what i like is what uh, as it dries down on my skin And equally well, what I usually do with new scents is that I will spray them onto a mouillette, one of the perfumers' blotting paper cards, Mm -hmm. um, not smell them, and just leave them in the open air um, for maybe a day. And then I'll pick them up and smell them. By that time, all the bits and pieces have disappeared, and you're getting down to the core of Mm. what that fragrance
1: is. Interesting. So I, I try to
0: simplify. And I try to encourage my evaluators to do the same.
1: So it's really based on the juice itself and not on any of the marketing notes. And what are you smelling? Even if there's all these floral notes listed, if your nose is not picking up floral notes, you're not going to classify it as that.
0: if one looks at a hundred fragrances, I'd say that by doing it the way I've suggested, you could pretty well classify it accurately in say 60, 65% of the time. Mm -hmm. Maybe about another 10 would need a little more study. And then some, you need to refer to the perfume to say, I'm just not understanding this, or talk to the brands about Mm
1: -hmm. it. And what are examples of times when, because I know the fragrance wheel has been updated over the years, what are the types of things that lead to updates of the wheel?
0: Well, there's only been one. In 1990, New West was introduced by Aramis, and it pioneered Calone, those water ingredients. Mm -hmm. You may feel that angels launch in 1992, pioneering gourmands, deserves a separate family, and I won't argue with you. Um, I chose not to create a separate gourmand fragrance because for me, gourmand is an accent. Mm. I'm not entirely convinced that you want a fragrance that smells utterly, totally of chocolate. I know there are some, mm-hmm. but I'm, I'm not too sure that I would like to hang a whole family on that. Whereas, for example, I can take gourmand notes and add them to a floral Mm -hmm. to a soft floral to a soft amber to a mossy woody note Mm -hmm. and equally find that it provides a marvelous tasty accent to those notes Mm. so the only new one that i put on has been the water notes in
1: 1990 Mm. well another update that i know i guess it didn't change the wheel but was officially changing the o word to amber which you have been a big proponent of and i would love to hear just um, how that has been met in the industry and what you would say to anyone who's still unsure about that change in the industry.
0: Get used to it. There's no way you can go back. Yeah. Okay, first of all, it's the French think the Americans and the English are pretty silly. Mm-hmm. They don't understand it. They giggle at it. But that's okay. Mm-hmm. That kind of... Uh, we're impartial. We're independent. We work with everybody. Uh, my database, frequencyworld.info, is a business-to-business resource for the perfumers and the brands. And so people talk to us, ask for our opinion. Over the past five, seven years, more and more we've, we've spoken to brands who ask the question, what do you think about this? At the same time, we were receiving emails from people who'd found our address to say what do you think about this? Mm-hmm. Why do you not make the change? Mm-hmm. And nobody was making the change. But it became clear that in America in particular, mm-hmm. Asian Americans were being stigmatized. They would be walking in the street. People would insult them there. But, Emma, nobody was changing. Right. It got to a point that in July last year, after a great deal of consideration, we released a a statement that said it's time to change. We weren't saying that you have to change or that everybody had to change. We simply said that in our view, we could no longer support the use uh, in English speaking countries of mm-hmm. the term oriental. It had become derogatory, racist. And we felt no need for a term like that to make people feel uncomfortable about perfume. Mm-hmm. I thought Emma I'd be chopped off at the knees, but I was willing to do that because you know that's that's okay. If I s- remember, we, we take no money from the brands, So mm-hmm. if they agree or disagree, it really, it's, it's not the end of the right. game
1: for us. Right.
0: Um, to my surprise, though, within a week, the British Society of Perfumers had endorsed it. Wow. Um, then one by one, other oil houses started to agree to appear. The Fragrance Foundation had already started to push for it. Linda Levy was a marvelous help in that regard. Mm-hmm. Um, Today, there are only a couple of major sources in America who do not use that term. It just has too many derogatory racist terms
1: Mm -hmm. on that kind of thing. Right.
0: Um, And I'm very happy that we helped to make that change.
1: Right. Hello, Perfume Room listeners. I'm interrupting for only a brief moment as it occurs to me that I mentioned Commodity Paper Plus in the introduction of this episode, and I happen to have a 10% affiliate discount code. I love Commodity, and so I wanted to recommend my favorite commodity scents to all of you in case you were looking for a good gift idea for the holiday season. So my four favorite commodity scents are Paper Plus, as I mentioned, Commodity Moss Expressive, which is this amazing, fresh, spicy, woody bergamot. Commodity Velvet Plus, which if you like something like Maison Margiela Replica by the Fireplace, any of these sort of toasty, nutty, spicy, gourmand scents, you will love Velvet Plus. And Milk Personal for this sort of soft, lactonic skin scent. If you want more details on any of these scents or you want any other recommendations, you can always message me on Instagram at PerfumeroomPod. For 10% off, you can use my affiliate discount code at checkout On anything you purchase from commodityfragrances.com, the code is PERFUMEROOM10. I repeat, PERFUMEROOM10 for 10% off any purchase you make on commodityfragrances.com. Let's get back to the episode. Have you ever encountered a fragrance that was unclassifiable.
0: <laughs> yes, it's called a stew.
1: A stew. Okay, tell me about stews. <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. Let's 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 come to some basic things. You and I can put 10, 20, 100, 40 ingredients together and we can make it a marvelous stew. And we can then let it mature. Oh, it's great. But the ultimate test Guy Robert, the great perfumer who created Madame Rochasse, Kaleche, and so many of the early Gucci fragrances. I once asked him, what makes a successful fragrance? And he looked at me and smiled and said, above all, it has to smell good. So let's accept that as the starting point. Um, yes, you can mix florals and you can mix ambery notes. We call them floral amber notes, as you can see. You can mix woods and you can mix flowers and amber there, and we, that becomes interesting too. Now, many of the new synthetic notes are starting to come to the fore. Can they be added on their own? For example, let's take a centric molecule mm-hmm. with its um with its with its synthetic molecule note. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, the synthetics tend to have some smell reminiscent of nature. Right. And so a uh, centric molecule is the scent of cedar. Exactly, for
1: right, right.
0: So, you I mean, if you want to add a petrol scent to a fragrance, yes, you can. I would question whether it meets Guy's objective of, above all, it must smell nice. Mm -hmm. We do, especially in niche fragrances, where the perfumers are trying to make a different impression, quite often you come across a fragrance that at first you think, what's that? But when one wears it and lives with it for a while, usually you can pretty easily put it in one of our basic families. I haven't as yet seen the need to add a 15th family called synthetics. Hmm.
1: Okay.
0: Because the reality is that the magic of modern perfumery is due to the synthetics. Mm -hmm. I mean, people think that they're cheap and inexpensive, they're not. Some are more expensive than the most expensive naturals. Mm -hmm. But a great perfume usually has a body of the finest naturals
1: Mm -hmm.
0: on a skeleton of innovative synthetics. Mm -hmm. And so they go throughout the families. So to come back to it, yes, from time to time you get a perfume that really is a mishmash.
1: Mm
0: -hmm. It's a stew.
1: (laughs) It's a stew. You know, it's interesting because earlier before you were mentioning that you see gourmands almost as an accent to something else and that in theory it wouldn't be a full gourmand edible type scent. And so I, th- I think with some of these sort of more synthetic conceptual fragrances, if something has a note of wall plaster or gasoline or any of these sort of innovative notes, like what you're saying, if you look at the skeleton formula, it's grounded in something that you are familiar with. Is that is that I mean, usually the absolutely case? right. Yeah. absolutely
0: right. Mm. You have to to make it wearable. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, your database has over forty-four thousand fragrances. I must now forty-six thousand. Forty-six thousand. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yes. Okay, wow, incredible. And are there any perfumes that do not get to be in the database, and what would be oh, a reason yes. for that?
0: Oh, I would, I would dream to be able to include all the Osmotech fragrances of the turn of the century, from nineteen hundred right the way through to let's say nineteen forty. They're long gone. I'd love to create a little boutique for the Osmotech to put their fragrances onto it. Mm -hmm. That would be a dream for me, I think, there. Mm. Um, But those would be the ones. We're Mm -hmm. pretty well up to date on modern fragrances.
1: Mm. And what is the process of, um, as a brand, getting your fragrance classified? And what is the process on the fragrances of the world teams and today? What do you guys do?
0: Well, in an ideal world, they'll write to us or say we've got this new fragrance here's a sample um here's what we think the notes and stuff like that would you include it and we only too delight to do it we make no charge um I, i know that sounds funny but when i first started i would go to the counters and the great consultants would offer me the samples that i could evaluate and we'd smell there that's how it worked in 85 86 87 when Nordstrom the great American department store first found the book in 1988 life changed because um, I started to get worried that if Estee Lauder VP or Chanel VP went to one of the Nordstrom counter picked up my little guide looked at it sniffed loudly and said what a load of hooey my whole business would collapse Mm -hmm. and so I thought I'd better start checking with the brands well I wish I could tell you that I persuaded them to list, to pay for listing their fragrances, dream on. (laughs) Uh, And so right from the start, we made the decision we would make no charge Mm -hmm. for listing any fragrance, big or small it was. And that remained uh, our key to this day. If you wonder at the business model, uh, while we make no charge for listing or classified fragrances, of course, Uh, We do have the business-to-business database, Mm -hmm. uh, which is on subscription. And we now pioneered online fragrance finders back in 1999 for beauty.com in America. Mm -hmm. Today, we account in Europe for just over 80% of all the content on European fragrance finders.
1: Wow. So with your fragrance finder, for example... Are you coming up or is the algorithm coming up with fragrances that are going to be in the same family or maybe right next to them on the wheel? Like what are you using to recommend?
0: It's same family recommendation. Mm -hmm. Let's take, for example, let's say that somebody likes Mm Frakkah by Robert Piquet. Now, remember, we've already entered the retailer's list of fragrances. Mm -hmm. And so the database starts searching for matching fragrances. Uh, Let me go back. Fracas is a floral rich tuberose. Right. The database would ser- database would be searched for other fragrances that that retailer stocks that are also floral rich tuberose notes. Mm-hmm. Let's say they find Michael Kors.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: If there's nothing more there, they would go to the crisp column where you also have the crisp tuberose notes, and they might pick up a girlan, aqua allegorium. Mm-hmm. The next step would be go to classical rose. Because we found the people who like tuberose also tend to wear rose notes, So we would look for a Chloe, for example.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: We then go to orange flower. Then we'd start the mixtures. We would go to the Giorgio Bouquet ones where you have Gardenia tuberose put together.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And so for every fragrance, there is an algorithm which goes 12 steps down within that family mm-hmm. to get the best match. Mm. That's how we do it. We don't encourage people on that. Um, to go to other families. In talking to you, you asked me the question, you said, what about adjacent families? Right. For example, we have soft floral, then you have soft, uh, then you have floral amber, mm-hmm. then you have soft amber. And it was interesting that you asked, am we likely to recommend those? The answer is yes. Mm-hmm. In the fragrance wheel, it was designed so that you could see the evolution of the families one lead into the other. Mm-hmm. Think of the old uh Opium, for example, and youth tea. You'll very often find the people who wear that in winter, in summer, would graduate down to a floral amber note. Right. Equally, all people in floral amber might go up in winter to an amber, a soft amber note and down in summer to a soft alderhildic note.
1: Right, right. We
0: find that movement within the adjacent ones on the wheel.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, speaking of adjacency, you mentioned, and this is really interesting to me, that you have found that people who love tuberose to also love rose. Are there any sort of, um, I don't want to call them sister notes, but notes where it's like people who tend to like this end up usually liking this and might not know of it?
0: Oh, invariably. My job is to give people some confidence in fragrance. Mm -hmm. Once they're into it, then they start smelling for themselves and trying different fragrances. Mm-hmm. All I can do is to give them the confidence to start the journey. But mm. they must finish it.
1: Okay. So hear this, everybody. You must go on this journey and figure out what it is that you like.
0: But there, but there's so much you see available. Emma. Think of Wikiparfam, mm-hmm. on which we're working. Right. Uh, I, I mean, I'd, I'd recommend that everybody go to Wikiparfam. In the States, it's wikiparfam.com. In Europe, it's .fr. And it's moving into China shortly. Mm-hmm. This is totally free, an encyclopedia, accurate information, it's fun. That's where you start learning about the notes that you like, Mm -hmm. because together with the perfumes, you can see the notes that come in, you can start checking similarities. Mm -hmm. Like anything worthwhile, it takes a little bit of effort, but you get so much for it.
1: Well, I'm curious, of the 46,000 fragrances in your database, how many of them have you personally smelled or experienced?
0: Or why? Oh, Emma, I've been working at this now for close to 50 years. Uh, Have I smelt all of them? Answer, no. Nobody could. It's impossible. But I have a very talented team of evaluators. Mm -hmm. And in both Europe, uh, in uh, Asia, and in America, we have evaluators with whom we work closely. Um, If we get a perfume that we've not smelt and we don't have a sample handy, we look at the pyramid. We look at how the brand classifies it. Uh, if it's becoming pretty clear what it is, we'll usually send a note back to the brand to say, based on what you've given us, it would look as though it is going to be classified as this fragrance or that fragrance. Mm-hmm. If they're not sure, we would then usually ask to go through to the a perfumer to try to quantify and get further details. Mm-hmm. If not, and they are bound to be some fragrances that we take a stab at because we can't get any information, we keep them in what we call the... Um, unclassified list. Mm -hmm. And we all carry that around with us. And as soon as we can find anybody who knows that information or we smell it somewhere, boy, it gets ticked off that list. Mm. So it's a constant program.
1: So are most brands coming to you having already used your wheel to say, this is based on how you classify fragrances, where we've put ours, do you agree yes or no, or they come in with no previous sort of assessment?
0: Um, both, I think. Mm-hmm. Many brands are now using our wheel. Um, uh, I, I notice Creed, for example, they use our classifications. And we're very comfortable to that. Uh, the brands are permitted freely to use the fragrance wheel just so long as they uh, put our copyright on it. But there's no charge for that, so it's a logical thing. Um, mostly, though, they come to us with a perfumer's description, if they do put that. Mm-hmm. Uh, Very few try to make up their own classifications, except for the niche brands. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very now and then, we we do come across brands who've created their own fragrance classification system. Hmm. Um, It does make it a little more difficult to work with them, because Mm -hmm. they tend to have very strong views about what we might say, what we might not say. But
1: Mm
0: -hmm. nevertheless, we usually manage to work our way through
1: it. Right. Well, you were mentioning um, that you don't take money from these brands to be classified. And I think that is probably what allows you in so many ways to be completely impartial. But I would I would love to be partial for a moment and just hear what are some fragrances um, in the last five years that have come out that um, have really left an impression on you?
0: Bucket of 540 by mm. Francis Kirshen.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I love his style. I, I was so happy that he said Dior now. It was the first niche fragrance to crack the top American 20 sales. Mm-hmm. That's incredible. Uh, of the millions upon millions upon millions of searches in our fragrance finders for um, uh, Sephora, Mario in eight countries, Isipari in the Benelux countries, Macy's in the United States, now Alta, uh, Boots in the United Kingdom, the perfume shop, guess what's the top searched brand? Baccarat Baccarat, 540. (laughs) It's a phenomenon.
1: What do you think has made Baccarat such a blockbuster fragrance? Word of mouth. Word of mouth.
0: None of us make successes. Mm -hmm. We can't dictate whether a fragrance will become a legend. Mm -hmm. People do. Mm -hmm. It's word of mouth that is the most crucial thing.
1: Right. I feel like it came to represent such a such a style of luxury and opulence that the people who were wearing it were a kind of like energy that other people wanted to exude and then it became this whole Absolutely This whole thing. And that
0: is then that's the beauty of what's happening in perfumery now. Mm-hmm. There's a return to luxury.
1: Right. Right. Well, speaking of sort of trends that you're seeing right now, what are some of the the trends that you've been seeing recently and what are some of the biggest changes that you've seen to the fragrance landscape, um, in your illustrious career?
0: The biggest change is the surgence of niche perfumes. Mm-hmm. In anticipating you might ask this question, I pulled out the figures from our database. In 1981, there were 17 niche fragrances introduced. That was really just l'artisan parfumer and penhelegance at Mm -hmm. that stage. Mm -hmm. 91, it went up to 33, so from 17 to 33. In 2001, it jumped to 59, so 17, 33, 59. Mm -hmm. And then 2011, 10 years later, 311.
1: Mm.
0: Last year, 1,371.
1: Wow. That's exponential. Yeah.
0: Why? Niche put pleasure back into perfume. Perfume had gotten very boring at the end of the 90s. Discounting was prevalent. The rise of celebrity fragrances mirrored the rise of customer complaints. Perfumes (laughs) don't smell as good. They Mm -hmm. don't last as long. They were true because many of the celebrity brands had been forced to cut the cost of the juice in order to pay the celebrities. Mm -hmm. But then the niche started, smallly at first, Primarily in America, it took off mainly because American great department stores were forced to discontinue many of the great names of the 1980s, early 90s, because they'd gone into discount stores. Mm. And I always remember a colleague at Nordstrom who used our work, they said, gee, you know, we can no longer stock opium. I said, why? They said, because now you can pick it up for $32 in the discount store. Mm-hmm. And we have a policy that people can come back and bring any product back to us and we'll refund the money without any question. Mm. So the question was, what do they replace it by? Uh, hesitantly at first, the great stores started to look at these little niche artisan fragrances from France, mm-hmm. and Nick for example, Lartra Perfumer here. And they got more and more enthusiasm. And one thing led to the other, and today we have the magic of niche. Mm. What is the worst thing that's happened? Oh, the desecration of some of the fine perfume ingredients. Because of the sensitizing agency, because of the difficulty, so many of the great perfume materials that made possible the legendary fragrances of the first half of the last century are no longer usable. So many fragrances have changed. I remember when I first met my wife 50 years ago, I said, what are you wearing? I knew nothing about fragrance. She said, why? I said, no, seriously, what are you wearing? She said, why? No, I said, I mean it. And it turned out that she was wearing Y or Y by Saint Laurent. I mean, that was magic. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Can she wear it today? No, Mm. no. Now the name's been given to a masculine fragrance, Mm -hmm. and that one's long gone. We all have stories like this. Mm -hmm. So that's the one thing that I regret immensely. Mm. But I love the fact that niche has, has risen because, for me, this is the nursery school of the future. Mm. Uh, the great brands in today's climate find it hard to innovate because it's so costly right. to bring out a new fragrance. But on the other hand, when you're looking at 130, uh, one thousand three hundred new fragrances, niche fragrances, maybe amongst them, are frequencies from a brand that's come up with a new idea, a new concept, maybe a new lanabo maybe a new uh, addition to Parfum, maybe a new Beretta. Mm-hmm. These are the morals of the future. I mean, remember, if you would, that Joe Malone was once a niche brand.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. How do you differentiate, um, you know, niche brands and indie brands? Because a lot of the niche ones that you've mentioned have been acquired or in talks of acquisition. When does something stop being niche?
0: I think as its sales develop mm-hmm. and its distribution develop. By definition, niche means very limited distribution. Mm-hmm. The moment you start expanding it out, no, then you, you've moved into the prestige or luxury cap, mm-hmm. capital on that one. there. Um, it does imply small. Mm-hmm. It implies artisanal approach.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, would you regard Joe Malone now as niche? No, you wouldn't. right. right there was a time when it was niche in that way.
1: Right. That's so, it's so interesting to just uh, watch it change. And I want to go back to something you were talking about before, which was what the department stores were encountering of fragrances that were bestsellers getting discounted. What, what makes a fragrance get discounted to begin with and move to those other stores?
0: You'll forgive me, but the Americans can't resist money. <laughs> <True>. <laughs> when you've got a great success, you can try to make the most of it. There. Mm-hmm. well, it wasn't the brands that initiated that. Mm-hmm. Perfume is a product of its time. And I have to go back a little bit in history because after the Second World War, uh, with the mortgage available to the returning GIs, we started to see the development of suburbs, suburbs in America. Mm-hmm. Before then, you had the city and then you had farmland. Right. But with the development of the levered towns and things like that, suburbs came and... Inevitably the retailers would add a mall and usually they would be one of the great department stores in the mall And so from the 1950s, 60s, 70s, the great department stores got used to making their money by putting out new stores But around right about that time American cities started to get regeneration uh, And suddenly the suburbs started to close Malls no longer open as frequently. mm mm-hmm. Well, there was one or two noughties department stores who saw an opportunity. This was in the 1980s when there was people asking them every day, could you sell me 10,000 bottles of Georgia or 20,000 bottles of opium? I'll pay you cash (laughs) immediately. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that is too tempting to resist because, remember, they probably felt they didn't have to pay the brands for 120, 200 days. Right. And discounting started then. The brands were horrified. They got it under control. But then in the early 90s, the Gulf War started. Now, by that time, um, the great perfumes brands were subsidiaries of global multinationals. And if you're a marketing director of a global multinational, Gulf War or not, you'd better keep your budget. Mm -hmm. So the marketing director suddenly thought, uh-oh. And they suddenly picked up all those people who'd bought all the discounted fragrance before and said, I need to up my sales. Do you want this product? And Mm -hmm. discounting became part of the norm Mm. in many parts of the world. Gray market was the theme. Mm. It's tragic.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: But that's how it happened.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting because I think often of... Different um fragrances and the way that they smell and how they account for different generational trends or things that were going on contextually, but you don't think about it with the advent of the gray market necessarily. I know. So I know. it's everything affects <laughs> yet, everything.
0: It does indeed, because the gray market in effect gave us the niche.
1: Right. Gray market led to then, niche. Right.
0: Well, yes, of course it did. Because right. you see, what had happened is is that when the department stores could no longer hold. Many of the great brands of the 1980s, they were forced to look for new ones. Mm -hmm. They then took in these new little niche brands. Mm -hmm. Think of Aniquital, for example, Ethro, think of uh, Penhelegance, those ones. Right, right. But they also found in America a new customer, a woman who'd grown up with Charlie in the 70s, Mm -hmm. who loved the explosion of uh, smell my fragrance in the 1980s, Mm -hmm. and now was looking for something different. Right. That was a new generation mm-hmm. of customers. And that turned out to be the initiative for niche.
1: Hmm. I think it's really interesting that you referenced Charlie uh, coming out, you know, in the late 70s, because I think that was also coincided with the time of the independent working woman. And if you look at all of the marketing of Charlie, you know, it was like, it's Charlie. And she was like in a business suit. And I'm, <laughs> I, I, lo- I love it so much. I'm I'm so curious because you mentioned, you know, the opulence of the 80s, more subdued fragrances of the 90s. What do you think were pivotal moments in culture and and subsequent fragrances that followed? All right, if
0: I go back, uh, I'd have to identify François Coty, a great genius, who at the turn of the last century created L'Odigon, the first floral amber note, Schiepler de Coty, the first mossy woods note there. Uh, he was a genius. I mean, here was a man who not only created fragrance family, the Schiepler family, mm-hmm. created the floral amber family here. He tra- He was the first one to commission designers to create perfume bottles. Before then, the perfumeries would uh, take an ordinary glass bottle, slap a pretty flowered label on it, and use the same bottle for a dozen different perfumes. Cody believed that a great perfume was worthy of a treasure chest. Mm. Even before Mrs. Lauder, he was the first to do gift with purchase. He did research. Um, I remember I once met a lady who wore a perfume, uh, one of the perfumes that he introduced each Christmas. It was called the Unknown Perfume, the Parfum Inconnu. Mm. I didn't tell her it was the, I think the thirteenth one that he produced. You see, every year he would come out with a new perfume at Christmas that he, on which he was working,
1: mm-hmm. and if
0: it sold well and the reception was good, it would be introduced the following year mm-hmm. under its proper name. Mm-hmm. There, uh, he was the first to define how we should display perfume in shop windows. Wow. Uh, For example, instead of a multitude of different fragrances and brands, he dictated one bottle spotlit there. Mm -hmm. And when he died in in 1932, with his death, he seeded the entire French uh, fragrance industry. Uh, For example, uh, Armand Petitjean, who in 1934 created Lancôme, had been Coty's PDG, president. Before that, he'd been his commercial agent in Brazil. He was succeeded by Serge Hethro-Louis, who in 1947 created Parfum Christian Dior with his childhood friend Christian Dior. Mm. Georges Beau was Coty's commercial agent until he founded Robert Biguet and then Parfum Greer, And Benjamin Levy, was Coty's American associate. He was the man who financed Yves Saint Laurent, for example. Mm-hmm. I got fascinated. If, in my book, Perfume Legends, I've explored this. I've also explored in the new book coming out in 2024, American Legends, mm. Coty's Heritage. Mm. I would then have to say Chanel Number no. 5. Mm-hmm. Um, Coco Chanel was not the first designer to create a fragrance, but she was the first successful one who defined the whole category on that one. Moving forward, you're right, Charlie. It's so important that we say before Charlie or after Charlie. Charlie spoke, as you pointed out, Emma, to a new generation of women who'd moved from homemakers to the office. Mm-hmm. But so important was Charlie's role in perfume history that we talk about before and after, because before Charlie, men bought perfume for women. Mm-hmm. Women really bought it for themselves. Afterwards, increasingly women bought it, and by the end of right. the 70s. Right, right. Women were buying more fragrance for themselves and men were giving it to them there. Hmm. I can't move aside opium. Opium was the first person that launched imagery. Uh, it was our blockbuster. Think of Jaws, just as Jaws changed movies forever right. in theatres when it moved into a 1,000 theatres and had to advertise. So opium changed us at that time there. And then Angel, mm-hmm. probably the most original thing that's happened in the last 50 years. Mm-hmm. So that would be my selection of Cuff. Hmm.
1: And within all of the fragrances that you've encountered in your, in your personal experience, which fragrance has most shaped you and the way you experience fragrance?
0: Ooh. One of the first fragrances I bought was Vetiver by Carvan. It was made by Edward Hach of Fermanish in 1957. I, I bought just an aftershave. I wore it on a holiday in Mauritius. Mm. I smell it in my mind to this day, but it's long gone. Wow. If I could recreate it, it would be magical. But that's part of the magic of perfume. You smell something and it lives on in your mind right. and your memories.
1: Is there anything that exists with that said in your in your sort of mind's eye that maybe has not been created yet, but would be a, a dream fragrance for you?
0: I don't think so. I wouldn't be so arrogant as to say that. How can one predict uh, an art form that will happen? I mean, that's, that's why the perfumers are there to come up with something new for us, to tempt us with intriguing things. Mm-hmm. They put different combinations together. No. Of all the fragrances that exist today, though, I still go back to one of the 90s. I don't know if you ever smelt a variation of Feminity Du Bois by Shishedo. Mm-hmm. It was called Bois de Violette. Mm. It was based on Chris Sheldrake's Feminity de Bois formulation with Violet Notes that mm. came out from Pierre Bourdon And it's available in Paris at the Palais Royal. I've never got tired of it.
1: Mm.
0: And then the other one would be Eau Sauvage.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Came out, Edmond Rydniska's creation of 1966.
1: I love Eau Sauvage. I, I feel like it's still so relevant today. And if you, I mean, it oh, still I, is. If you walk into Sephora, uh, you'll see it right next to all the new releases. But there's something so classic and timeless about Eau Sauvage.
0: Joe Malone says it smells muddy.
1: Mm, I love it. I love that. <laughs> what in your career in the fragrance industry has been the most memorable or special experience for you?
0: I couldn't say one. In terms of memorable would be 2004 when I won my first Fifi Award mm. at the Fifi Awards in New York at that time. Mm-hmm. Then the experience of working with Di Robert, uh, the man, the perfumer, creator Madame Mademoiselle Chasse, as I mentioned, many of the early Gucci fragrances. I first met him when he was president of the French Society of Perfumers. He was the man who gave me so much help on the writing and researching for perfume legends. They can't even begin to tell you how many files he sent me, people he sent me to see. He became my mentor, a very close friend, and for the last 12 years of his life, the technical uh, consultant for my guidebook, Fragrance of the mm. World. But I would also have to say would be the experience of meeting people like Edmund Rudnitska, Maurice Roger of Dior, Mm -hmm. Robert Ritchie, the perfumers, Pierre Dinant, the great designer for example who created in 1977 the Opium Bottle. I mean he's done the Eternity Bottle, he's done Obsession, done over a thousand bottles in his life he's still working by the way appears in his 90s
1: Mm.
0: and if I sound like I know him I do because for the last 20 years we've shared a studio together in Paris oh
1: wow
0: I'd have to say my wife too it's been a memorable experience to be married for 50 years you can't imagine how much she had to endure to put up with all the (laughs) stuff that I I go through
1: (laughs) I'm sure she smells lovely though
0: oh she's had a pick of everything yes (laughs) (laughs) I remember uh, Madame Rochasse is no longer available, but Guy had gave, given her uh, a liter bottle oh my of perfume of that one. Wow! It was only a few years ago that she finished it. Wow. There have been so many memorable things in my life.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: I've been very, very lucky.
1: Mm, that's amazing. And I think looking forward, as we reflect back, looking forward, where do you think the industry is headed what do you think is, is next for trends in the fragrance industry?
0: I was talking to um, Judith Gross, the communications VP at IFF yesterday, and she, she said that they had been doing research to find out where people are at the moment, because I think to the industry's surprise, everybody assumed that people would play down perfume about COVID, mm-hmm. far from it. Perfume sales, as you know, soared. Mm-hmm. And from research, she said, three things came out, three words. Happy, holy, healthy. Mm. Fragrance must make people happy, feel healthy, and be almost spiritual. Mm -hmm. I think she's very right in that assumption. Mm -hmm. I see perfume becoming more luxurious. On the other hand, you know, don't go too far in this luxury. It's got to be worth it. If you're going to charge us a lot of money, let's at least have a lot of love and experience coming through with it Mm -hmm. there. Uh, Just because something is is expensive doesn't necessarily mean it's all that good i agree so i i hope that the luxury will be able to be sustained by the pleasure it gives us
1: Mm, i love that and we do have one final segment of the show it is a rapid fire scent association game Mm, what's that smell i will just say different places people emotions and you tell me the first smell that comes to mind and no answer is incorrect all right. are you ready to play? What's that smell? I shall. okay, Michael. What is the smell of Paris?
0: Abbey Rouge by Guerlain.
1: Mm. What is the smell of Sydney?
0: Jasmine, white jasmine in the
1: spring. Mm. What is the smell of New York City? Wall Street. Um, what is the smell of your wife?
0: The scent of my daughter when she was born. That's so
1: beautiful. What is the smell of your home?
0: Oh, okay. feminité du bois. Mm. We spray it in the air with that warm cedarwood note.
1: What is the smell of love?
0: My wife. When you've been married for 50 years, it can't be but else. Yes.
1: <laughs> okay. What is the smell of humility? M mm. Okay, the final question: What is the smell? Of Michael Edwards. Oh, sauvage. Oh, savage. Beautiful. Well, Michael, it has been an, an honor, truly my great honor to be able to have you on. Thank you so much for all of your wisdom, knowledge, honesty. It's been absolutely wonderful.
0: Emma, it's been a pleasure to work with you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you all. My answers are unrehearsed because I don't have to rehearse. I live my life and I so enjoy talking to you all. Thank you.
1: Perfumer was edited by Wyatt Peak, Music is by Max Hernan, and illustrations are by Israel Rodriguez.